Gregoire and Dan Beeston are smart enough to know better. Welcome to episode 132 of Smart Enough to Know Better. We're a podcast of science, comedy, and ignorance. I'm Dan Beeston. I'm Greg Waugh. And in this episode, we're talking to friend of the show, Michelle Bannister, about one of the most exciting pieces of space debris that we've come across so far. Ladies and gentlemen of Earth, I come with terrifying news. Scientists have proven that an interstellar visitor is amongst us. Never before has something from outside the solar system penetrated so deeply into Earth's space. To answer how much danger we're actually in, we have managed to get friend of the show, Dr. Michelle Bannister, expert in all things trans-Neptunian. Dr. Michelle, thank you very much for joining us at Smart Enough. Thank you. Now, how much danger from this visitor do we expect? Do they do they want to take all our money? Are they going to turn us into paste? Are they just going to take all the water? Do we have to send Bruce Willis to blow him up? What's going on? Yeah, nah, we're fine. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, that's the end of the episode. Thank you very much for listening, ladies and gentlemen. But I've already <laughs> locked myself in my bunker. <laughs> it's now, going to take me hours to unpick that lock. Now, for all our listeners who are freaking out right now, I'm not talking about an alien visitor, really. I'm, I'm, I'm talking about an asteroid that's been discovered, that's been seen cruising through our solar system. So can you explain what's going on, Michelle? This is a tiny little interstellar planetesimal, a tiny little wanderer that has traveled between the stars and came in on a highly inclined trajectory into our own solar system. And it went past the sun, it didn't have any activities that went past the sun. It wasn't seen by the surveys that uh, in orbit around the sun directly looking for comets and things um, that zip in close to the sun, the SOHO and Stereo spacecraft, and they didn't see it. In fact, we didn't actually see it after it went past the sun and came out towards the Earth at all. It was relatively close in the sky to the sun itself, so we, you, you can't look too close to the sun. I think Not supposed to look at the now. sun. Not supposed to look no. at the sun. <laughs> I learned from that mistake. <laughs> You get you get these lovely tiny little brief eclipses, and then no, speaking, speaking of tiny things, you you say that this thing was tiny. Is it like smaller <laughs> than me? Because I'm pretty tall. It's it's like smaller <laughs> than an apartment block. Right. Okay. So, yeah. yeah, yeah. So am I, just like me. I'm smaller than an apartment block. <laughs> exactly. It's not quite. It's not quite as small as you, but yeah. So it went past the sun. It came out towards the Earth, and then it went past the Earth at a good, considerable distance away. Not particularly close in solar system terms at all. And then on the way out past us, there's a telescope in Hawaii called the PanStar Survey, and that was able to pick it up. So okay. they discovered it on the 19th of October this year. Now, would it make it easier to spot once it's gone past us because it would be more fully illuminated in the same way it's hard to spot the moon at new moon, but it's really easy when it's full moon? Yeah, so it wasn't so much that as just it got far enough away from the sun and the sky that the telescope could actually see it. Oh, that's because it, otherwise it would be overwhelmed by electromagnetic radiation? Yeah, it's just, so there's, part, there's always parts of the sky that we can't be looking at at a given time just because the geometry of where we are, where the sun is, where the moon is. And so every telescope that's doing surveys, like there's a survey um, called NEOWISE, uh, which is an infrared space telescope, and it looks 
to asteroids. Um, but I couldn't actually see this on the on the way in either because just of the approach geometry. So if any aliens are listening to this podcast, we have a weak spot in the sky that we can't really see things coming towards us. Is this what you're saying? Yeah, and there's a bunch oh. of <laughs> ideas of how to have telescopes that can actually, you put them in space and um, locate them in such a way that you can actually look at that what's effectively a blind spot for a... It's not a very big blind spot, eh? <laughs> oh, good. Oh, good. Phew. So this rock that came barreling in and then kept barreling, it was moving pretty fast, like kilometres a second, isn't it? It's it's moving yes. at a fair rate. And this was the thing. So like it was so it was released to the world once uh, the team in Hawaii, the, the team from the PanStars survey, so they found it on the 19th. Then they went back and checked their observations going, oh, it's a bit weird, found it in data on the 18th of October, and then they were able to use a bigger telescope. So PanStars itself is quite little. It's only, it's only just a bit over a metre. So they took a much bigger telescope, the Kander France Hawaii Telescope, which is on a neighbouring island of Hawaii, and they used that to detect it again and went, oh, this is on a really interesting orbit, although you wouldn't actually even really call it an orbit because it's not bound to the sun. Oh. This was really unusual. We don't see things that are not bound to the sun very often at all. This is the first one that's been detected in 19 years of digital sky surveys. It sort of fell in towards the sun, but it's really just on the way through. It just happens to be going past the sun. Yeah, and it's, move, it's moving fast, but it's in this kind of interesting Goldilocks zone. It's moving at the rate you would expect for cosmic driftwood in the sense of the sun is going happily on its orbit around the centre of the galaxy. Do, do, do. We orbit the Milky Way. You know, it takes a very, very long time compared to everything happening here on Earth. And as it's doing that, it has a velocity through space. So if you imagine something that's travelling in the galaxy just bobbing along at the same orbital rate and it happens to just get swept up going past the sun, it's going to be going at the same galactic orbit rate. And that's how oh. fast this thing's going. It's literally, yeah, driftwood is a very good way to, to think about its relative velocity to us. It wasn't fired from something or it wasn't, I didn't mean fired like from a gun, but it's not as if it's been shot out from somewhere. It just happens to be in space going around the centre of the, the Milky Way like we are. Absolutely, yeah. So, oh. so we can sort of go, oh, well, that's probably from our galaxy, not from another galaxy. So, the, yeah, the velocity is very much what you expect for the local stars, for the solar neighbourhood. Yeah. Okay. So we've, because it's going at that speed and because of the trajectory, the trajectory of the orbit, instead of being a big ellipse like everything in the solar system tends to be, or even being right on the borderline of being an ellipse bound to the sun where you sometimes see a few comets, right at um, the shape of their orbit has an eccentricity to it, right? An ellipse has an eccentricity. If the eccentricity is at one, then it's only just kind of sort of a little bit bound to the sun. All the planets have eccentricity much, much less than one. Trans-Neptunian mm. objects, all much, much less than one. And they can get up reasonably high. You get one or two comets that are right at one, but this thing has an eccentricity of 1.2. <laughs> right. So the so shape it of its orbit's actually a hyperbola. It's going kapoing through the solar system. Ah, okay. So it was kind of on a straight line until it got close to our sun, I guess, and now it's sort of describing a big arc. Yeah, it basically did a handbrake turn around the sun. A oh, handbrake turn. <laughs> so what? It was making a, a, a straight line when it came in at the beginning and eventually it'll be making a straight line when it goes out the other side. What angle has it changed? If you look at the trajectory orbits, it 
Yeah, it basically it did quite a sharp angle turn just because of the gravity of the sun, not because of anything the object itself was doing. So it came <laughs> in, but it couldn't yeah. be perturbed by the planets. It was basically dropping straight in from above the plane of the planets. So no mm. planets perturbed it on the way in, which is another really good sign. It was interstellar. It actually came out of, if you look at like where on the sky it came from, it came from the point on the sky that's uh, um, what they have the cool name of the solar apex, the point that the sun is traveling towards in the galaxy. Oh, oh okay. Ocean. Yeah. And the solar apex is exactly where you hope to find one of these bits of galactic driftwood. Right. So once again, it gives more evidence that we've found something that's just in the galaxy, like we're in the galaxy. And so was that turn like a 90-degree turn or a like a total uh, hairpin turn? Is it going back the same way? <laughs> no, it's, it's not quite a hairpin turn, but <laughs> it was a Thank goodness. Yeah, it was uh, trying to remember off the off the diagram. It was a good ninety degrees. Wow! wow. So now it's it's I just still... <laughs> so we've really interfered with its uh, with its plans. Oh yeah, the next <laughs> the next solar system that sees this is going to have no clue where it came from. <laughs> I don't think it came from us. <laughs> That's right. They're throwing rocks at us. So what does this thing look like? I mean, when I think of an asteroid, I kind of think of a, a potato in space so flowing through that kind of bubbly, vaguely roundish kind of shape. Is that what this so, is? Th- this has been, like, entertaining because we had every telescope in the world that was big enough to look at this thing. This thing was small, very faint, moving very fast. It was not easy to do the observations. And we basically had a week where all of the ground-based telescopes in the world were actually able to observe it, and then it got too faint. Because while it claim came reasonably close to us in solar system scale, it came, so the distance from the Earth to the sun is uh, we use as one astronomical unit. It came within 0.16 astronomical units Oof. of us at its closest approach. So we were actually the planet that came closest <laughs> to which is really Ooh. handy for us to be able to study it. I guess that's the reason that we were able to spot it more effectively too. Absolutely, yeah. We, like, it's hard to find things the size of an apartment block. <laughs> <laughs> so if one had gone past Jupiter, we wouldn't know, really. The chance of us finding it would be very slim. Absolutely. There could be mm. plenty of those sleeting through the solar system all the time and we wouldn't see them. <laughs> is there any way we can predict how large that amount is? Yeah, a bunch of studies before this object was discovered that talked about, okay, we haven't seen any in 19 years, but we look at the sky this way and this often. That would mean it must be this lower density of these objects. And so everyone's been redoing those studies. Now we have one detection. (laughs) (laughs) It actually doesn't change the numbers very much. You look for 20 years, you expect to see one. It's pretty reasonable. And here it is, right on time. So, the so so after looking at it for a week, and it's now getting too dim to see. What have we learned about its physical characteristics of this interstellar visitor? We can measure the surface reflectance of it. So we can study what the few top microns of the surface are like, just the bit that bounces that light bounces off. So from that, we're able to see that its color is. Compared to the colour of the sun, because remember it's just reflecting sunlight, it's mm-hmm. not, it is emitting no light of its own in that sense, unlike a star. Or a spaceship. Its colour is, 
<laughs> it doesn't act like a spaceship. Good. It's not going to Neither do or I. Slow. <laughs> it's, it's a little bit reddish. So it's a bit in the optical colours, the colours our eyes see. It's a little bit, um, just a little bit redder than the sun, but pretty close to it, kind of pinkish, pink okay. grey. In the infrared, I was able to, with um, a couple of friends, to use a telescope called Gemini North in Hawaii to observe the infrared colour of this object. And it turned out to be a fair bit redder than the sun in, in the infrared. Ah, and a number okay. of other people using different telescopes around the world have found uh, the spectrum of it. So you take the reflected sunlight, split that up, and see if there's any absorption features in that reflected spectrum, which tell you about the composition of the surface. And there's no absorption lines. There's no strong features. Oh. Like, we know what the absorption... For everyone playing spacecraft about this thing, like, we know what the, uh, <laughs> what the, what the reflectance spectra of spacecraft look like. Because people actually have done studies where you look at all the spacecraft that we have in orbit and look what their reflectance spectra is as they age. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's oh, yeah, because, like, if you find a rocket booster, like an old Apollo booster or something, people want to figure out, oh, how did it change in the, you know, 40 mm. years since it was put up? And so there's been a bunch of studies like that, and, yeah, it, it doesn't look anything like an object that would be a spacecraft would make. Made from, made from any sort of metal that humans know about or something like that. Yeah, it doesn't have a metal reflective spectrum. There's no titanium okay. oxide. So were any of these telescopes optical telescopes? Or was it all radio telescopes looking at it? We've been able to look at it uh, basically between the wavelengths of about 400 nanometers and about 1.3 microns, or 1,300 nanometers. And what's visible light? So that covers visible light and the near-infrared. Hey! Absolutely, yeah. So at the moment, the Arecibo Radio Observatory in Puerto Rico, uh, as you probably remember, they had a, a bad hurricane there a while ago. So mm. that mm. hasn't been an action to be able to study near-Earth asteroids in the way that they would normally do, because otherwise, with enough warning, you can get a, a shape model. They can point at it and, and measure the exact shape of an object like this. Ah, right. So we so don't know it's, its shape then. Mm. But what we can do is... Enough telescopes looked at it over a week that you can put all the measurements of its changing brightness over time together, and it changes in brightness a lot over time. The change in brightness is at least one and a half magnitudes. Like a blinking alien light, maybe? <laughs> like no, a slowly not. spinning rock. <laughs> oh, okay, fine, fine. Yeah. <laughs> So it's elongated. We can definitely yeah. tell that. It's got to be um, elongated. If you think of like a, a space cucumber, this is like a five to one ratio space cucumber. Ah. Hey, Dan, that's, that's, your, that's your ratio, Dan. That's interesting. That's, you're about five to one. That'd be about right, wouldn't you? About, oh, no, um, maybe not. I've, I've been dieting, so I'm hoping I'm oh, more okay, 5.2 okay. to yeah. one. But, uh... <laughs> if the light was static the entire time, then it would be more likely to be more a sphere shape. So it's the, Absolutely. It's the, okay, so it's the fact that from our point of view, it's sort of we're looking at it on its end and then we're looking at it all the way along its length and that's... That's giving off, that's reflecting more light at certain times. Yeah, that's, um, so that's exactly what we're measuring as far as we can tell from does, the change in light. Does but that it's mean been... it's tumbling end over end then? Is, is it like flying through space like a, like a boomerang? It's not spinning along its long axis, it's, it's tumbling. 
Yeah, it's probably spinning along its short axis rather than along its long axis. So we're seeing okay. the change in brightness from seeing the profile of the side-on space cucumber to the end-on space cucumber and back again. <laughs> and okay. so are we 100% sure that it's sort of a cucumber-shaped and not a little bit more, say, monolith-shaped? <laughs> So this is the fun thing, is there's been, I think, at least four different studies so far, including the one I've been involved with, um, looking at what shape you can get from the data that has been observed so far. And I think now we're almost at the point where everyone can put these five different telescope sets that observed over a week together and see if we can get something more out. Because Okay, it could be really long and stretchy. Like one team um, with Karen Meech leading it has suggested that it could be as stretched out as 10 to 1. But we don't actually see any asteroids in the solar system like that. So that seems like a really surprising end case to go for. So maybe one of the alternative explanations we could have is that there's bright and dark patches on this object, what we call albedo variations, and that's also contributing to why we see such an extreme light curve. So it could be striped like a zebra. Well, there's a little moon in our solar system called Iapetus, and it's actually completely white on one side and completely black on the other side. <laughs> Wait, what? And Where's that? What happens then? What, what planet's that around? Uh, moon of Saturn. Moon of Saturn. And it, but, but so it's like a big yin-yang in space. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. <laughs> it, um, it sweeps up a ring, so it's actually like snow-plowing a ring onto one side of it. Oh, wow. So it's like a black thing, but it's collecting, like, space dandruff on one side. <laughs> Snowplow. Yep. <laughs> That's pretty cool. So this but thing, yeah, this thing could have picked up all sorts of weird stuff. Like, the colour of it the colour of it best matches, if we look at things in our own solar system, it best matches the colour of the Trojan asteroids of Jupiter and of some of the dynamically excited objects, the objects with orbits that elongated rather than being round and flat that we have in the Kuiper Belt okay. out beyond Neptune. So the thing that's really been intriguing me is the colour of this thing. Okay, so it's been travelling between stars, which means millions of years of sitting in interstellar light. What we had thought was the things in our own solar system that sit outside the magnetic bubble that the sun blows, the heliopause. We have plenty of objects that orbit out beyond that, and so they're effectively in interstellar space as well. And those ones tend to be quite red, like really redder than the sun in their reflected colour. But this didn't have that colour. It's it's not that ultra-red that you see on some of these objects. That was a bit of trickiness because the objects that we can measure this for in our own solar system, the ultra-red ones, well, they tend to be big because you need enough yes. light to come back from out beyond the edge of the heliopause kind of thing, objects like Sedna. And so they're a lot bigger than the tiny, tiny little spinning world that we have here that's coming from another star. But, yeah, just like, okay, so did something happen to this object when it went past the sun? Did its surface, like, mm. have a phase transition and uh, change its crystallinity or something? And that's why we're suddenly seeing it bluer than we might expect of this. It's a fun did it puzzle. ablate? Did it ablate as it went round? I guess we'd see a cloud around it, wouldn't we, if something, if something fell off it? or it, 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 It's not a comet is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, and that's like that's been the fun thing is everyone's going, oh, we were expecting the first interstellar comet. Oh, mm. we have the first interstellar weird thing. 
<laughs> Once again, reality doesn't care about what we want to find, I guess. We just find what, what what's actually out there. So we don't know what yep. it's made of. Well, we know it looks a lot like things in our own solar system. We don't know what it's made of, but we also don't know exactly what the surface of these distant things in our own solar system is made of. We have some good ideas in the sense of it's got to be like organic molecules that have been changed by cosmic radiation. You know, it's got to be some ice involved, whether it's probably probably it's water ice, but maybe you've got a kind of insulating layer of goop over the surface of these organic molecules and little dust particles and things, particularly little bits of rock dust, and that's keeping the water ice well away from anywhere that can get enough heat to turn this into a comet. This total conjecture here, but it just makes me, my brain just suddenly realised when people talk about panspermia, as in organic molecules coming in from outside the solar system and, and infecting slash seeding planet Earth with life, something like this could do that if it had picked up molecules from somewhere else that travelled through space for millions and millions of years. In the sense that we don't know what happens to molecules like that, like life molecules, the things that are involved in our biology, are reasonably fragile under Mm. strong cosmic ray bombardment and the like. Like if you look at the surface of Mars, it's not covered in life, right? (laughs) Yes, that's Um, true. (laughs) it's pretty easy to destroy a bunch of the molecules that are important for life as we know it to exist. Now, if you look at interstellar molecular clouds, the big clouds of gas dust kind of things that you get between stars where some of them end up leading to stars being born in them, those clouds do actually have amino acids in them. So Mm. you can string yourself a, a, a nice story where you have one of these things go through a cloud and pick up some amino acids, but there's a long there's a long way between an amino acid and hey look here's a bacteria. Yes. <laughs> we don't yeah, that's it. I, I wasn't trying to promote panspermia particularly. It just made me go wait. So at least now we know rocks can come from outside the the sun's influence. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, there's this lovely extension to this in that. We always hope that you have this lovely model of how you form a planetary system as you start with a disk of gas and dust and star springs into fiery energy in the middle of it and this disk of gas and dust accretes into planetesimals and then those end up becoming planets and the planets sweep up more of the planetesimals and gas and dust and get bigger and then you end up with a planetary system and and then you have some really complicated things all happening. One of the outcomes of having planets in a disk of planetesimals of tiny little protoplanets is that a bunch of those protoplanets of the of the small ones will get thrown out of their stellar system. Mm. And exactly how this happens and how many of them get thrown out depends exactly on what we call the architecture. Okay, where do you have a Jupiter relative to how far away from its star is it and that kind of thing? Any given planetary system and we know those planetary systems are pretty abundant in the galaxy, one of those is going to throw out a lot of planetesimals as part of forming its system. A couple of Earth masses, potentially, of planetesimals, at least one Earth mass. And so if you take, you know, one one given apartment building-sized planetesimal (laughs) flying through the solar system, and every star in the galaxy is producing on the order of an Earth mass of these things... (laughs) Yep, the galaxy is full of flying rocks. <laughs> thank goodness it's very, very big. Very few glass houses in there, though, which is good. 
So this thing is, has flown past the sun. It's flown past relatively close to the Earth, like about 10% between the distance of the sun and the Earth, roughly, maybe 20. And it's shooting off. But it's not out of the solar system, is it? It's not that fast. It's still in the solar system at this time. Yeah, yeah. No, it hasn't made it more than a couple of astronomical units out yet. The Hubble Space Telescope is still observing it, and the Spitzer Space Telescope, which observes in the infrared, um, will be looking at it shortly too. And so it, will it be amongst us for a while? Like it, it'll be weeks or months in the solar system, or is it is it shorter than that? Oh, yeah, no, it's months. Solar system is still remarkably big, even when you're going at interstellar speeds. <laughs> yes. If you, if I, so here's the question then. If we wanted to catch this thing, could do we have the technology to catch it? <laughs> that gets really hard. If we'd had something immediately ready to go as soon as we discovered this, we might have had a hope. Mm. But so the New Horizons spacecraft, right, at launch was the fastest spacecraft thing we'd ever made deliberately. Yes. This object is going so fast that it would be going past it more than twice the speed of New Horizons. Right, okay. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Because New Horizons, it took like eight years to get out to Pluto, right? Space is big. Space is big. Space. So this one's travelling twice <laughs> as fast, which means it's going to take four years to get out there? Yeah, that's, pro- yeah, that's about right. And, it, and it's travelling about the wow. same speed as it was when it came in, I'm assuming. So it's been here a while. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, but we couldn't see it, of course. Couldn't see it. Just, it's so small, it just doesn't reflect enough light. So there's probably about one of these things going past the Earth every given day that we could... <laughs> <laughs> oh, good. That's always useful to know. Now, if it had hit the Earth, would that be like a civilization killer? I, I'm just trying to get my mind about how fast it is and how big it is. If it crashed into the Yucatan, like the one that supposedly wiped out the dinosaurs 65 or so million years ago, would it be the equivalent sort of destruction? No, it actually depends quite a lot. So it's a lot smaller, I think, than the Yucatan one was. If you make it to a sphere, it has like a kind of a mean size of 70 metres. Oh, so it's okay. really quite teeny that way. It's just really long and stretched, as far as we can tell. Oh, I see. And one of the dinosaurs was kilometres, wasn't it? It was quite a large rock. Yeah. Well, yeah, the, heat, the energy will go as the velocity squared. It's also... <laughs> ah, you have to do some quite complicated double-checking for where the Earth is relative to what angle is it in the Earth coming in at. Are we actually, like, going in line with would it, if it was coming in from behind us or if it's coming mm. directly head-on velocities? And Yeah. yeah. There's a, there's a, it's actually not too bad. It wouldn't be good, but it wouldn't be Dan has to move into the bunker for the rest of his life situation. Oh, I'm yeah. stuck here now. I cannot get this lock open. <laughs> <laughs> Damn it, Dan. We talked about this. Not till we get the final So Michelle says yes, then we hide. That's how it works. I panicked. Or, or if we can't get hold of Michelle, we assume the worst. Your intro was too dramatic. <laughs> Very true. If we, if we see one of these things coming, every, every astronomer in the world is going to be telling you about it. So don't oh, yes, yeah, that's, never that's worry true. about that. Because... <laughs> I can't just imagine, will there be a fight for the person who gets to name it? Because it'll be like, I'm the person who destroyed the world. Hooray. It'll be a very important thing for the history books, I guess. So the naming on this one 
two really lovely. When it was originally found, it was just called A1 2017 U1, just because that was the, the next designation off the list of designations that was ready to be assigned for a thing that was found. You know, we give them little telephone numbers as they come in yes. for asteroids and comets and all that, that kind of thing. And then the International Astronomical Union, which I now serve on one of the naming committees for. Uh, oh, really? Oh, really? Ah, person on the inside, <laughs> finally. Very, very useful to know this, yes. Uh, We've tried to get things named for a while, but it hasn't worked for us. So I wasn't involved in the naming on this at all, but um, it means I know a little more about how this kind of, how the naming of these kind of things works because of this committee duty. So objects like this, we didn't actually have a naming schema for them. We have naming schema for how asteroids get named, how comets get named, how trans-Neptunian objects get named. We have naming setups for all of those. We didn't actually have a naming set up for this because, well, hadn't needed one. So what they decided was this object is now got the naming schema of the first of its class because there's going to be other telescopes fighting these things. And so it's Interstellar 1. It's I-1. Nice. And they also decided that because normally to name one of these objects, you watch it for quite a long while as it goes around the sun and then you know what its orbit is really precisely. So you can say what sort of object it is. You can always find it with a telescope years in the future. You you know a fair bit about it. And then Mm. that's good enough that you can start applying an actual name to something rather than just a telephone number. But we're never going to see this again. By December, this will get too faint for even Hubble Space Telescope to observe it. It'll be gone. Mm. Technically, the orbit will never get good enough to apply a name. But... We have, if we just call it telephone number, Interstellar 1 for the rest of its life, that's going to be kind of boring. So the PanStars team talked to Hawaiian language experts at University of Hilo, and they decided the name they'd like to use for this object is Omuomua, which is a Hawaiian word which means to, to scout, to seek out. <laughs> and the is a repetition that tells you that this is kind of the first one of those. Oh, okay. So, it's not... Yeah, so my mind went somewhere else then. And see, when I hear scout, I think invading force. Yeah, yeah, that's where like, I went. I think there's a, there's a subtlety that's not particularly well translated there. Oh, okay. Um, All right, that's good. Word for, in the choice of the English word for the translation, I, w- I would say it's more like the one who goes ahead. Oh, okay, sure. Mm. <laughs> so now, reconnaissance. Uh, and- that's... <laughs> That's the one who goes ahead. Maybe the translation is actually just subtle enough. Yes, it's just the point. Now, when you are naming things, because you're saying you're on the, uh, you help out with naming of certain things. Surely, people you know when they name this, they must get tempted sometimes just to call it something like Nibiru, just to upset the conspiracy theorists. Because then you could write, you know, Nibiru, the death, the death planet discovered, and everyone freaks out and hides in a bunker. Honestly, the weight of emails is uh, such that uh, it would be really frustrating if we did <laughs> I what love the, the fact that it's, jokes it's... about Rama I've heard in the last three months. Oh, you can imagine, yes, of course. So what stops scientists from doing this stuff is the level of emails. It's, it's, <laughs> it's uh, inbox zero is your greatest friend in keeping everyone serious. <laughs> So if we were able to get onto this rock and and look at it, is there anything that we might expect to find there that we wouldn't find on other rocks in our solar system or that where we would go, oh, we'd never expect to see this locally, 
simply because it's come from somewhere else in the galaxy? At the moment, no. At the moment, it looks like a slightly towards the edge cases of what we see in our solar system, but but it looks really like a perfectly ordinary solar system object. Okay. Are there possibilities of other objects out there that because they started at a different place, they would be, like, obviously alien? Well, I mean, that was, like, that's why we pointed all the big telescopes at it as soon as we could, because everyone was hoping, oh, you know, what's it going to be like? We, we didn't have any expectations except what you might get from going, okay, we, as far as we understand it, our planetary system isn't special, so planets should form the same way in various places. So the chemistry should be roughly the same for, for example, the okay. stars that formed in the cluster together with our sun. And so things from that cluster should be, yeah, you know, reasonably similar. What about and if you've got a, a rock from, like, the centre of a galaxy where there's, like, it's closer to the centre and centre mass? Is, is there an expectation that there would be different geography throughout the, the disk? I mean, it could be quite cool if you had, say, I'm, I'm, so I'm kind of uh, freewheeling here. Yeah, yeah. What, what me too. If we have, all are. <laughs> if you have a rock that forms around a star where the metallicity is completely different from what we have at our sun. So what we could have here is actually this object maybe a little bit similar to an asteroid in our own solar system called Psyche, which is much, much bigger. But it's the metal asteroid, is what the people working on it love to call it. And <laughs> it is. It's, it has a spectrum that's much more metallic, and it's uh, um, an M-type asteroid, metal-type asteroid. And there's actually a spacecraft that we're sending to it, which is also called Psyche. Psyche is going to Psyche. <laughs> <laughs> and that'll launch in the next couple of years. And that'll tell us a lot more about these kinds of asteroids that formed as the centres of potentially bigger planetesimals. Ah. So it's like a piece of, of a core left over and all the outside's been stripped off. Oh, so wow. that might be what we're seeing here. It's like a very tiny little sister of Psyche. But I don't know how you tell the difference between something like that and something that had come from a more metal-rich planetary system. Because mm. what we're waiting for at the moment is the observations that Hubble Space Telescope will make of this object will tell us a lot more precisely what its orbit was before it came into the solar system. So more points on the orbit means we can fit a better orbit and see exactly where its path was before it came into the solar system. At the moment, we're still... It's a, it's a pretty big region of the sky. And if, and if you have a better idea of its orbit, then you probably get a better idea of its mass, right? Not so, Yeah, not so much a constraint on that, unfortunately. Hmm. It's just... a too small. What we can do is say more about potentially where it came from. So there's a bunch of studies at the moment going, it came from this star. No, it came from that star. No, 40 million years ago, it went past this other star. And it's like, <laughs> uh, what we're all waiting for is a thing called the Gaia spacecraft's data release two, which will come out next April or thereabouts. And Gaia is a spacecraft that's making a big map of all the stars in the sky. Literally, that's all its job is. Mm is to measure very precisely where all the stars are in the sky. People have been trying to do this for over 150 years. So we keep going back and doing it better and better because it's yeah. so important. <laughs> so Gaia's that new star map will very precisely pinpoint the location of stars in the sky such that you can say, okay, well, it was moving here like this and the stars were there. And so when we run the orbit back a few million years, oh, those stars were over there then. They've now moved to where we see them today. <laughs> and you yeah. can say, 
oh, it went close by those stuff. But the thing is also, like, if this did a close stellar flyby in the same way it's done past our own sun, that will completely erase where its original home star was. And thus we've ruined it for someone else too. <laughs> and they'll never find it. If we did manage to have and uh, get a capsule and put Bruce Willis on the end of this thing, where's it going? Is it heading out of the plane of the galaxy now, or is it heading in? Is it heading out of the into the like close to the center of the galaxy? Where where roughly is it heading now? Do we think when it came in has been where people are paying more attention to, but of course the stars you see now where it is are not where they were when it started traveling towards us. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it's so long ago. Yes. Yeah, so now if you go, okay, where on the sky did it come in from? It came in from Vega, but Vega wasn't there where it is now yes. when it started traveling. Yeah. Right. And then it's been flicked sort of off to the side somewhere. Where And where yeah. it's heading now, no one really knows. So it's mostly going out kind of on a straight line away from the Earth in the sense that we're not really getting enough kind of changing angle observations to it with the current geometry, which is a bit annoying because it would help us constrain some of the surface properties, I think, with the phase function. But, yeah, so it wasn't does convenient. That mean, oh. Does that mean we're kind of looking down the trajectory of this object? So we're kind of watching it recede from us, but we're not getting much sideways movement in inverted commas across the sky. It's just kind of moving off from us now. Yeah, we're looking down the tailpipe, as it were. Right, okay. That, yeah, that makes sense. I can see that. So it gave us tantalizing glimpses into things that we didn't know. But what we've discovered, really, is that, once again, there's nothing special about the solar system. It seems to be made from stuff that other solar systems are made out of. We're, once again, we're just average. And that's one of the greatest delights, really, is we might actually be getting an idea of how planetesimals form, how planetary systems form. We see literally a visitor from what could be halfway across the galaxy. At this point, the only thing we can really say for sure is that this formed younger than the age of the universe and after probably the first metal-rich stars really formed because it seems to be the case that planets didn't really form until there was the second generation of stars, the ones with like what we call what astronomers tend to talk about as metals in them, things that actually go into making up rocks and uh, oxygen and all the, all the materials and water and all the materials that are really important for building planetary systems. They didn't exist. Those elements didn't exist in the first generation of stars. So it's probably younger than eh, 10 billion years, let's say. Oh, oh good. There we go. <laughs> but so I, we, we go. literally can't be any more specific than that. It wow. could have been wandering the stars for a very long time. So it's a 10 billion year old apartment-sized pink cucumber toppling end over end. And it came and paid us a visit. (laughs) I have seen very cheap films with a very similar premise. (laughs) Are there any questions, Michelle, that we should have asked that we didn't ask? And what's the thing that you're burning to tell us about... uh, Interstellar one. Interstellar (laughs) one. Interstellar one is good. Yes, that's it. I'll call it Interstellar one, yes. Probably safer. Yeah, Amumu is... It's not a spaceship. <laughs> so <laughs> if, if you want to play this game, like, it's a fun idea to play. It's like, okay, if we had an interstellar spaceship come in, what would you expect? If you want to send something between stars, you want it to take a bit quicker so you might get to hear back what it has to say. So because it's travelling at, like, the mean velocity of the local stars, that's actually really slow. Right. <laughs> it's going to take a really long time to get between stars. And also, mm-hmm. it didn't slow down or anything like that when it actually got to this star system. It just went boing, like a piece of driftwood on the tide. Right. And Admittedly, that's what we did to Pluto, too. <laughs> <laughs> well, we went pretty 
it like it didn't stop to look at us, right? Which you might hope it, if it was at all interested in any of the planets in the solar system, whether it went, oh, I should go look at Jupiter or anything like that. No, it didn't do that. It, if it's been listening to our radio transmissions for the last year or so, it's been a bit sketchy. I'm just pointing it out. Just a bit sketchy on planet Earth at the moment. I hear this. Yeah, there's probably some TV shows it needs to catch up on before it comes. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Well, let's just hope we didn't hear Greg talking about our weak spots. Oh, damn it. I've killed us all. <laughs> Thank you, uh, Dr. Michelle Bannister. We're not going to call the spaceship anymore. It's definitely just a a rock floating through space. Wink, wink. No, no, it certainly is. But thank you very much for talking to us today and putting us right about Interstellar 1. Thank you very much. Dan, you can come out of the bunker now. It's okay. No, I literally can't. Like, it just, I am really stuck. Thanks once again to Dr. Michelle Bannister for coming on and talking about all things Interstellar One. This has Did really you been approaching a... the microphone when you said that because you start off real I... tinny, like you're on the outside of the solar system, slowly getting closer and closer <laughs> to the mic. I like my science to be performance art, Dan. I, I speak like science is happening. That's I what it see. is. I just just call me into microphone one. <laughs> I'm not going to call no, you that. No, fair enough. No. You have been listening to Dan at smartenough.org. And that other voice is Greg at smartenough.org. You can follow us on the social medias at Twitter, yeah. SC2KB. And Facebook, SC2KB. And if you want to uh, follow Dr. Michelle Bannister, she is at Astro Kiwi on the Twitters. And all this stuff will be on our show notes, as well as a link to various iTunes and Stitcher and our social media stuff and you could go and talk there you can like write comments under the episode but it's pretty cool and also if you want to go those boys didn't really know what they were talking about i want to understand what an amazing scientist had to say well you can her paper will be in our show notes as well if you would like to support us Obviously, you can go to iTunes and review and rate us, but yes. oh, you know what? iTunes, are, like they want you to review every single episode now. And, and it's yeah, like, it's getting no, me crazy. screw that. You know what would be much better for us is you have a quick think and go, oh, you know what? I've got that friend who likes podcasts. I'm going to remind them about Smart Enough No Better because I love listening to it and they're probably going to have a ball listening to it as well. Share our episodes on Facebook and that sort of stuff. People go, hmm, Jimmy, shared something that isn't a, a terrible political thing that makes me angry. I therefore will like that person more. It, they'll make you more loved. You want to be more loved, listeners. I know you do. We're all desperate. Well, everyone's just looking for love why do you and think not we, to be killed by Why do you think we do rock? this podcast for free? That's right. It makes me wonder sometimes. Decades of work developing performance skills just so that you'll love me and send me a tweet. That's Just send him a tweet, people. God's sakes. To send Dan a tweet. And as we always like to say, Oh, for God's sake, send Dan a tweet. I've got the new headphones as well. Ah, brilliant. That should get rid of some background noise. And me hearing myself hop in occasionally. Which is the worst thing. Everyone hearing Dan is a terrible thing, so... Uh, The Skype ring call is now slower.
it's like slowed down by 20%. So when I hear it ringing, I think I'm having a stroke. (laughs) (laughs) I've moved to Perth, so I'm on the other side of the country now. So I think we can honestly say that we're Australia's first transcontinental (laughs) podcast. (laughs) Transcontinental and interstellar. There you go. Yeah, that's If you hear like a washing machine going in the background, I can move to a different <laughs> It'll it just add to the drama. It'll be fine. Yeah, we'll just say it's some sort of rocket engine that's cycling. Yeah, I like to think I work at a lab where we have machines that go ping and stuff. Yeah, that's, I work now for the International Centre for Radio Astronomy Research in Perth. That's why I came oh, out cool. here. I do. I work in the outreach side of things, and we have work experience students, and they're always vaguely disappointed when they come because they kind of go, "Oh, astronomers," and it's just people working at computers. <laughs> it's pretty much every, every occupation now is people sitting and working at computers. That's yeah. right. I saw two guys today who were like road workers or something, like dressed up in like safety shirts, sitting at a bench and uh, working on an iPad, <laughs> planning out the day. Well, just before I left the CSIRO, we were planning on creating our ultimate frisbee outreach group. There's a there's a good parallel in frisbee and outreaching. Like that's how well, you that's... that's how you serve it up. <laughs> it is. It is. That's a terrible pun. <laughs> I wasn't quite sure. I was. I, I was glad to finally uh, nod at the notion that it's, a, it's an interstellar dildo without actually saying interstellar <laughs> oh, dildo. Is that what you were trying to get at. I didn't pick up on that. Okay, right. there you go. Oh well. Some of our audience certainly will. Yeah, yeah, they're they're looking, they're they're waiting for it. It's all good.